The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar three times. Maybe it's time you switch to Red. And for Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide, princewinestore.com.au. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. And welcome everybody to episode 261 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm here in the studio with my friend Corrie Perkin. Hello. Hello, Caro. How are we going? How was your Easter? Wonderful Easter. Ate far too much, as we say every year. Food at Easter is far more interesting and enjoyable than food at Christmas. I don't know why, particularly if you live in Melbourne or anywhere in Victoria. And we had the, let's face it, the weather was Scheisenhausen, wasn't it? (laughs) But it was fun. It was fun. All the more reason to eat. We had a lovely little trip to Queenscliff, you and I. We caught up with our friend Annie and we went to lovely dinners and lunches and watched lots of footy. Both our teams lost. Um, What can I say? It was a nice Easter. Well, I played golf on Sunday. So anybody else in Victoria who played golf or south of the Great Divide would know the weather, as you said, was uh, pretty awful. I think we had four seasons in three holes, Caro. <laughs> I can't believe on good... There f- went the blow wave, I can tell you on, that. On Good Friday, there was a bit of a family swim down at the local beach. But by Friday night, it was sort of... I couldn't believe the house didn't flood. Anyway, um, we've got plenty to talk about today, Corrie. There's a referendum coming up. So we're going to talk about briefly about referendums. And you've read a brilliant piece on Marcia Langton, who's going to be appearing at the Sorrento Writers' Festival. Mm. And speaking of the Sorrento Writers' Festival, which begins on April 27 and runs for four days, we are recording a special live podcast on the eve of the festival. Wednesday, 26th of April, we're going to be at the Sorrento RSL between five and seven. $45 buys you a ticket to join us for a drink, a complimentary drink and some light finger food. A lot of our friends will be there. Corrie might bring along one of her writers or two. Anna from the Op Shop's going to be there. The link for tickets is on the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook and Instagram pages. Or, of course, you can find them in our show notes or you can head to ballparkentertainment.com.au forward slash tickets. The word on the street, Caro, is that uh, that... Don't shoot the messenger event at the Sorrento RSL has gone off, quote unquote. Well, from my source, from my source in the ticketing office. That's great. We're really looking forward to seeing you all, and I know a few people who are coming down for the festival are going to come a day early. In fact, I've got a great screen for today, and there was an episode filmed, a lot of it filmed around the Continental Hotel in Sorrento, where oh, a lot of your events are going to be. Fabulous. I wonder if it'll be like uh, every time you go away with a group of friends, or certainly it used to be pre-children, you'd go away for a three or four day long weekend Easter or Melbourne Cup, and you'd go out hard the first night, and then you'd spend the next three days recovering. I hope that's not that. Make sure I don't have too much Well, to you and I did RSL, that at Easter. Because I, I made sure I was working last week on um, a piece on Ross Lyons' return to St Kilda. Did a lot of work on it earlier in the week and I managed to track down Nick Revolt, the former St Kilda captain who I think was a big power broker behind Ross's return to St Kilda. Um, early Thursday morning, we got on the ferry, had a lovely lunch. Then we had a meeting about a forthcoming trip and I noticed you didn't have a glass of wine, but I did. Then we went to dinner 
That was a that was going that was out a big day. Too hard, too early. It was a big day, and the the lift was supposed to collect us at eleven thirty at night, and I think it was, gosh, it came at about one o'clock. I was almost crying with exhaustion, especially as I had. 14 or 15 of the family coming the next day for I think for it, Good I think, Friday I think lunch. Was, I think it was more like about 12, 12, oh, 15. Oh, my but you're goodness. Right. No, Carol, it was one o'clock when we got home. Uh, it was really late and I had to get up and cook because, of course, I'd been swanning around the um, Bellarine Peninsula with you and our friend Mike Sheehan having a lovely time with Annie. I felt a bit like I was uh, on a ferry with um, something like the love boat. I don't know, with... with <laughs> Celebrities. Every second person stopped you or Mike to talk about how Collingwood was going. I didn't even have a chance to. Carlton get on the, was going. My favourite thing on the um, the Trans Bay ferry, the um, the massage chair, best four dollars you'll ever spend. Corrie, you were very taken by a piece you read um, in the Weekend Australian on Marcia Langdon. Yeah, I was, Cara. We talked about the voice to Parliament last week and how we felt it was gaining momentum. And the big question, I guess, uh, we, you and I discussed afterwards too, was whether Australia was starting to engage. And I think most definitely over the past week, my feeling of it is just reading the papers, including the Murdoch media, including the Australian, the Weekend Australian and the Herald Sun, is that people are starting to engage most definitely. And it might have been, one of the catalysts might have been Peter Dutton's decision last week to oppose the voice that will probably be seen as a key moment in this campaign. Whatever the result is, I think probably Peter Dutton saying having a Canberra voice is not going to solve the issues on the ground. Yet most Indigenous elders and spokespeople would argue contrary to that point of view, but it probably will have something to do with that. But the other piece, as you said, or the other moment, I think, for me, was reading the Marcia Langton piece in The Weekend Australian by Helen Trinker, a most respected, award-winning senior journalist there. And I thought Helen did a terrific job. I know Marcia. She, I, I, I think she would, and we would call one another friends. We had quite a lot to do with each other when I was a journalist at The Australian, doing a number of stories on dodgy Indigenous art. And um, gosh, that's a story that continues to <laughs> continues to really decimate the industry and, and raise so many questions. But um, but Marcia is uh, is a is a passionate, determined. Pretty much all her life, she has been focused on having some sort of represent representation like this for her people. And this really is her big campaign, her big moment, as it is for Thomas Mayo and Noel Pearson and a whole lot of the others. But the piece of, on Marcia, I thought, was uh, was warm, was truthful, was uh, addressed um, so many of the issues and the fights and the confrontations that Marcia has had in her life, not only professionally but personally. Even as a young girl growing up in Queensland, she would always just automatically in a shop stand aside so a white customer could take her place in the queue. Um, I, I thought it was a really great piece and there are a number of, um, a number of things that Marcia said in that article which were just um, particularly um, terrifying. But um, I, I can't imagine the disappointment that people such as her and Noel Pearson and the Dodson brothers and all of the other extraordinary Indigenous leaders are going to feel after so many years if this voice doesn't get through. I reckon it'll get through. And in fact, I, I think that um, the Peter Dutton decision to oppose it 
is forced is going to force a lot of people who didn't really understand it. And I'll be honest, I didn't really understand it when I first heard. I mean, by the time it was proposed, I understood it. I think it's going to force people to have a look at what it actually means. And I think people, that, I mean, all, all the figures are saying that um, only Queensland is going to vote against it, that it's going to get up in every other state. And, of course, it doesn't need to get every state. It just needs to get a certain majority. So there have been 44 referendums in Australia's history. Only eight have got up. The most successful was in 1967, which was a vote for Aboriginal rights. And early on, they, they failed because, first of all, women in most states didn't have a vote. The first referendum, I think, was in about 1910 or something. And I think only West Australian... South Australian women could vote. Maybe it was a bit later than that. And obviously no Indigenous people could vote back then. But more recently, I mean, you know, it's funny. I was thinking back to the referendum on the Republic mm. and um, looking back. 1998 from memory? I, I cannot remember what I voted. How bad oh, is that? of course you would have voted I, for a Republic. Well, I don't know if I, don't know that, if that, I would have at well, the time it, because it, the you alternative... To, you have to take yourself back there, though, Caro. That's the problem with the, the hindsight of history because then as soon as it was defeated, the the Howard forces really... And we had conservative government for quite a long period of time. Yeah, but and they didn't was, have a good alternative. I mean, I, I don't see why we need any... They were fighting or, amongst themselves because, yeah. remember, they couldn't decide how a president should be elected. And why... But I, I say, why do we need a president? Why not just have a prime minister? Well... You don't need a titular well. leader. You don't articulate it as, as it should. And I, I think know that... what, I don't know what they do with Yarra Lumler and Government House in Victoria, but I'm sure they'd be put to good use somewhere. I mean, and also I think also the Republic was always going to struggle until the Queen died. That was another reason. But I, I honestly believe that I, I honestly can't remember what I voted. But we know it was defeated. We know everyone agrees it was a a very trendy campaign with some of the best minds in Australia working on it, and yet. It failed dismally. Yeah, I, I, look, I think this one is a little different. It's um, it's, oh, it's completely uh, different. Yeah, it's it's, it's um, a no-brainer to me. I don't well, understand I think why. So. I, I think it's a human rights issue. To be honest, it's all about equality. So if Australia is to stand by the the virtues that we espouse, then surely this is it. There's a real for people who are interested. There are a couple of things I would recommend if you want to get an easy. Uh, digestible overview of this. And I have to say that it is Thomas Mayo, who is um, one of the um, great advocates of this voice to parliament. But he was interviewed on the Guardian podcast, Full Story, the edition of April 11. And Thomas, who was incidentally Caro Thomas Mayer until a couple, a few weeks ago, and he's decided to change his name back to his original, the original name of his grandmother and elders, uh, it was his father, I gather, who was in a, a, a top-end missionary as a child and one of those missionaries and the, and the priest or the reverend or whoever it was said, oh, Mayo, that's a silly name and added an R and called him Mayo. So that in itself kind of like, what else do you need, everybody, to get you over the line with this one? Uh, but anyway, Thomas um, Thomas outlines a whole lot of of these points that the uh, opposition forces, not just I don't just mean the Libs and Peter Dutton, but people who are opposed to the voice arguments that they have been mounting, and one by one he tackles each one. I think I think quite calmly and quite sensibly, it's a really interesting podcast. Have a listen. And the other thing, of course, is that Thomas Mayo is coming to the Sorrento Writers Festival. We have an event on the Sunday called a Voice to Parliament a discussion with Marcia Langton, Kerry O'Brien, Patricia Carvelis, Thomas 
and um, Juliet, Professor Julianne Schultz. But we also have Thomas the Night Before, Caro, because Tom was one of the uh, authors of the Uluru Statement to the heart, from the heart. And uh, he, we've asked him to recite it on the Saturday night just before our concert, which he actually does on this podcast as well. And I dare anybody not to have a tear in their eye as, um, as, as he mounts um, what is a compelling case. It is going to be really interesting, isn't it? Well, it's not going to solve a lot. It's not going to, but I, th- I think historically it will be a moment. When I say it's not going to, it, it's not going to end the hugely complex issues we have in this country with our First Nation people. But I do think that declaring that they have a pathway, I mean, you know, this sort of suggestion by, I mean, I, I think the opposition leader at the moment that it's a really bad proposal and it, it's the wrong proposal. It, it doesn't make sense to me. And you can see that even a lot of his own party are now really struggling with it. So I, I think it was a bad decision. And I think had this been a unilateral push for a referendum, I, I think honestly it might have had more trouble. But the fact that no one, the, the, the explanation by Peter Dutton as to why he's opposed it just doesn't make sense to me. He says he's spoken to elders who are concerned and... Well, well, I of think of course there I th- are concerns, and I of think course there are treaty people, and there, there, there's so you know, not you know, the Indigenous Australians aren't united, just as you know, late, white Australians aren't well, united. Well, to- Thomas, uh, in the podcast, Thomas Mayo says that one of the one of the stumbling blocks for a lot of people is that they assume that the the Indigenous people want to have uh, a veto. They don't want a veto; they just want to come together as a coherent group and be able to put forward after much consultation within their own communities, this advisory group want to put forward, look, we think that the money on Indigenous health should be would be better spent here or we think a solution to locking up our young fellas and having such a huge incarceration rate, we think the solution is this. The fact that they haven't been included in the conversation because for so many years we haven't had any First Nations people as members of parliament, it's time to redress the balance, I it, reckon. It doesn't, it's not like it make, <clears throat> makes anything law. No, that's it's an advisory the, the, group. Um, the marriage equality wasn't a referendum, was it? That was a no, vote. No, that was just a vote. That was just a vote. And gee, that took it. That took it. Because time a referendum, to get a referendum is all about changing something that's in the constitution. But, but the interesting thing about the advisory group, and Marcia Langton said this in the Weekend Australian piece, Caro. She said there is no evidence that she has ever seen that any previous bodies that are set up like this do anything other than improve Indigenous outcomes, uh, outcomes for Indigenous people. There is no evidence to show that anything shocking or untoward or misguided or mismanaged happens. Only good outcomes generally come from something like this. So I reckon it's going to be a really interesting few months, but if you want to hear more, come down to the Sorrento Writers Festival and uh, and join in the discussions. We're going to be having plenty of them. Caro, we probably need to have a drink, do you think? I'm looking forward to talking to Miles today and I'm looking forward to talking about autumn picnics and hopefully there'll be picnic weather coming up. Welcome, Miles Thompson. Lovely to see you. I hope you had a good Easter. I gather there was a bit of a pouring at Prince Wine Store. Yeah, we did Etna Wines and it was very popular. Oh, yeah, Sicilian. Yeah, yeah. And, and this one is all off, off Mount Etna, so 
even sort of more interesting again. Yeah, really, it's a bit of a, I think it's in the kind of, particularly in Victoria, it's in the sort of wine psyche at the moment. People are really interested in those wines. And they're very, very, I mean, all those Italian wines are unique, but these are, I think, particularly unique. So. And every, um, everyone yeah. wants to go and to Sicily. And obviously, well, we had a few people asking about the Lucifer. Oh, are they? That's we talked good. about it every oh, week my. now. My goodness, so actually the podcast is working. That's great. Yeah, we love a good conversion rate in A few people sales. came in and said, is that the Lucifer? Oh, like, yeah, that's that is. really good. So that was on taste. Well, I am going to Sicily in July, fingers crossed, and um, our discussions about these wineries around the base of Etna have, have made me think mm. about this could be quite an interesting day trip. Very I cool. They, do you think they do a cellar door? I know we've talked before about the difficulties I, of Italian wineries. You yeah. can't just rock up. It's not like here in some Victoria. Some do, some don't. We could probably organise something for you. Oh, could you? Miles, could, at least organise a, a staff, hook up. A staff member. Closer <laughs> to home, we're thinking, you know, beautiful autumn weather that seems to be coming back. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe a trip to the Dandenongs, even more local, the Botanic Gardens, maybe to the sure. Yangs. Um Maybe to somewhere on the Mornington Peninsula. Maybe sure. the Mornington. Maybe in our backyard even. We want to go on a picnic and we want to know what wine to take. Yeah, so I picked two. They're kind of fun because picnics are fun. They are. <laughs> generally speaking. Unless you had one on the weekend. Well, yeah. yeah, that's right. I know a few people went camping. Uh, poor things. Um, yeah, so I picked two. So the first one is uh, a winery from uh, a wine from Germany. A Ries- it's a Riesling blended with other bits and pieces. Beautiful. It's Mulacatoire and it's their Gutz wine, which is just, uh, it's usually unlabeled with a vintage, uh, sorry, labeled with no vintage on it. Um, Goods, like I think it's like G U double T S W E I N. Carol, it's like that oh. spice shop that we can never pronounce. Oh yeah, Gewurzer House. <laughs> the Gewurzer House, yeah. Um, and so, wine. lovely. Yeah, they they. This is I, I understand that it is actually twenty twenty two, but they're not allowed to put it on the label what the vintage is. That's the rules around Goods wine. Oh, you find that in France and Italy too. The really basic sort of level. And wise. what is Molucatoy? So, Mol- 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 they're, Mol- so they're, they're a producer, very old producer. They're out of the Falts, which is a bit south and a bit warmer. So lovely kind of plushness to their wines and, and richness. And this is just like, a, just a great straight up, like just nice, dry, crunchy, textural Riesling from Germany. So not, not really, I mean, these all have a little bit of sweetness, but you don't see it in the, in these wines because they have such high acidity. So heaps of freshness and that lovely you know, like tropical and tree fruit and that lovely, you know, white pepper spice thing that you sort of get in nice Rieslings, that really kind of minerality, super fresh, super bright, but lovely plushness as well. Oh, Cara, lovely that fruit. sounds like it could go well with the grilled chicken breast on the picnic barbecue. Oh, perfect. Sounds yeah, yeah. beautiful. And it's a litre. Oh, really? That's the best part. Okay, so you have to have a, you have to have a truck to go on your picnic. Oh, just yeah. perfect well, I mean, with terrine and cheese and a beautiful and salad. And if you've got a few people, you know, you get a litre of wine and... I always think those large formats are good for that sort of stuff. And how much does it cost? Uh, so that is $37. For a litre. Well, that's for a good value. Yeah, exactly. Can I just go off piece for a minute, Carol? You said the Botanic Gardens, are you allowed to have, uh, are you allowed to drink alcohol in the Botanic Gardens? I've never been kicked out. No, of course you are. Are you? Yeah, you can. Well, no one checks you as you're walking in. Well, they would see you if you had a litre bottle, I think. No, they wouldn't. It was I've in had your plenty of barbecues bag. in there. Yeah, no, of course you can. You I mean, you, when I mean, you go I down you... to those barbecues on the Yarra. There's... Yeah. Well, I hope you can. It would yeah, be awful if they were. I think if you're causing trouble, <laughs> if you're causing trouble, they'll 
boot you out. If you take your clothes off and run around and laugh Is that causing trouble though? I just think you can't let your dog dog off a lead. You can't let your dog off a lead, but you can certainly take coming. Let your alcoholic husband off a lead. Well, you can, can, of course you can. Yeah, you go on picnics anywhere. All right, good. No, just checking. No signs that say no alcohol. And what's what's the other one? And so the other one is from the Kerner boys in, in Clare Valley. And it's the Kerner Brothers in a Box. So I kind of, we tried it a few weeks ago and I couldn't help myself. I thought it was perfect when this topic came up. So it's Grenache and it's the Grenache that they bottle. So exactly the same Grenache, which is a fantastic Clare Valley Grenache. It has that lovely, you know, lovely slippery sort of Grenache feel. Lots of that spicy lifted red fruits. It's a, you know, lighter sort of style, which I think, you know, if you're getting some warm weathers, you're going for picnics, it's perfect I'm for the fr- perfect red. I'm frowning at you, Miles, because I'm a bit concerned about the box element. It and sounds it is, like a wine cask to and me. And it is in a cask. It is ah, in a box. I Sorry. can't go back there. Get over yourself. I can't go back it's, there. It's the exact same wine that they bottle. And they've bottled, they, ca- they cast box. about five of their wines. They have sold out of everything. And this is the only one they have left, which is the one we like. Preferred anyway. And what's it called? So it's, it's a Kerner Brothers, Kerner in, a brothers in a Box. Really cool. They're, they're two two brothers. Wine They've taken parent. over sort of their parents' vineyards in the Clare Valley Winery in the, in the Clare oh, Valley. Just they're the very, best wine region yeah, in Australia. And they're very well informed with like Beautiful. European styles and they kind of try to emulate that but with a modern Australian sort of twist. They're, they're very clever winemakers. They're doing really cool stuff. I highly encourage you to look at any really? of their wines. Kerner with a K. But it's. Yeah, I, I just Kerner, feel K O E R N E R. I just feel oh, like you yes, can. We love them. Yeah, you, you have had Brothers. them before on different things, but you can. Yeah, they're very good. You can take the uh, wine out of the <laughs> cask, but you can't take the cask taste out of the wine. Sometimes. Well, Miles is telling us yeah, you we, can, Corey. I think we're going to defer to him. And, okay. And you know, well, it's 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 lightweight. It's it's one point five liters. So you can pour it out for everyone. Recyclable. Yeah, recyclable, super lightweight. And, of course, the great thing about cask is that every time you pour it, it re- it's essentially self-sealing. So a bag in a box is going to last you, you know, you can open a bottle of wine and it'll be, you know, a bit over the hill in three, four days, whatever, depending on the wine. But this you could keep keep for like a couple of weeks, no problem, because it, it <laughs> essentially reseals itself every We've time. That That's what's great about the, bag in a box. In the 70s, we did that. Mm. <laughs> I remember you coming round to but my this house isn't... one day and I served cask wine because I was going through a particularly, and you said, I can't drink that. And I was oh. so embarrassed in front of all these other that. girls. Oh, it was terrible. I? God, how rude. That's yeah. not like me. <laughs> I know. It was awful. And I felt like, but I, I just thought, you know, that was what I could afford and I didn't mind cask wine. Oh, no. I just always had a thing against it. Well, clearly. It would just—it reminded me of teenagehood, of growing up, and you—the you know, older the person like who the that? oldest, who was only seventeen, would go into the bottle shop and come out with sure. a cask of wins or something, and our you'd parents all, get all drank smashed. it. I know, but I, it was well, but we didn't really have a wine industry then—a huge wine industry then. No, Look, I, I get it, but I'm—I'm I'm sort of—we also had fondues, Caro. We also—that was the and era. What's of wrong with fondue? <laughs> Yeah, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Except that it can be a bit dangerous. Depends how much curse you put Kerner in Kerner Brothers <laughs> in a box. 1.5 litres of what sort of wine? So it's Grenache. And how much is it? And it's 57. Pretty good, Corrie. For yes, a litre and a half. Yes, yeah. so it's cheaper than the bottle. It, I think it works out cheaper than the, the bottle price by a fair chunk. Caro's up for the box. Yeah. Just don't serve it look, to Corey. <laughs> look, I, you know, I'm certainly, I don't know if Prince Weinstein backs me here, but no, they did because I, I, I told them what I was going to do and they thought it was, Michael thought it was fun. Um, but yeah, I think this, particularly for a picnic. Yeah. And I think for a picnic, I think it has its place. 
Um, and it's a premium wine. It's not, it's not, you know, Coolabar cask. Yes. It's Coolabar. Miles, you're not even not old Kaiser enough. School. You wouldn't have even been in a nappy I'm a well-informed wine about. person. Yeah. I know school. all about Blue Nun and Black Tower. And, oh, and Matus. And Matus and all the gear. Oh, don't knock used Matus. To drink. That was a great rosé. <laughs> and also doubled as a candle holder. The See, bottle. there you go. <laughs> Anyway, Miles. two 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 large format That's wines, great. plenty to drink with friends. The Molochetrois and the Kuna Brothers, Brothers in, in a, a box. box. So you can buy both of those at Prince Wine Store. Remember, if you want to go online, www.princewinestore.com.au. Put in the M E S. That's short for Messenger in caps for your Don't Shoot the Messenger ten percent discount. Miles, that was brilliant. Thank you. No, thank you. Corrie, we're on a roll. Thanks to Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro. You can call Red Energy on 131806. It is time for BSF, and you have a fabulous book. I do. It's a gardening book, Carol. I love oh, it when we have, perfect. A, have a coffee table book. I was actually recommending people should buy this in place of Easter eggs because, really, another egg who needs it. This is by Michael McCoy, and it's a book based on his most successful television show on the ABC, Dream Gardens. And the book is called Dream Gardens, From Small Inner City Gardens to Expansive Rural Properties. And it features the gardens from the ABC television series. Now, Michael McCoy, he, we actually did an event with Michael and Fiona Brockoff as part of our South Yarra Library, the Stonington Library sessions that we have at the South Yarra Library every few weeks. We had a fantastic night there last Tuesday night and Michael and Fiona were in full flight uh, discussing their aesthetic, their background, how they trained, where they get their ideas from, working with clients, good, bad and pesky, because we have to remember, Carol, it's like an old-fashioned commission, like the Medici's. Somebody says, I want you to create my garden for me. And I just want uh, a Japanese-style garden. And, of course, a lot of Japanese plants don't thrive and survive in our, our environment. So how do they adapt? This is, a, this is a terrific book. If you think of probably the, the nearest thing to it, although I think this particular production by Hardy Grant is vastly better than the series of books that Kevin MacLeod has done in relation to his Grand Design series uh, on, I think it's the BBC, and, but it's the same kind of idea, beautifully produced this book by Hardy Grant, as I said, and it, we go through a series of, I think there are 12 gardens in the book, lots of beautiful color plates, lots of interesting features of plants and also architectural elements, um, how Michael and the designers with whom he, he, he discusses their work have resolved or might've resolved a particular issue to do with the topography of the site or the soil or the light or the lack of lack of water, whatever it might be. But the pictures, Caro, and the interviews with the different garden designers is really what makes this thing zing for me. I kind of wanted to go to every garden. A lot of them are just what I would say old-fashioned suburban plots, but some of the techniques, like the espaliering of pear trees, the use of water and pools that aren't huge to swim in but just create such an amazing effect. The use of stone paths and pebble paths where somebody might have put down some grass that perhaps the weather would not have been kind to. Pebbles always work well. 
I just love this book. I think it's great. One of my favorite um, designs, one of my favorite gardens in this was actually a property that was um, ravaged by the Black Saturday bushfires and it's at Strath Creek in Victoria. And in fact, Paul Bangay has done this garden and he's quite expansive with um, in his chat with uh, Michael. But it's just such a beautiful um, environment. I love seeing garden books, Australian garden books that feature uh, Victorian gardens because, of course, our gardens and our climate uh, and our plants are so different to Queensland and, and New South Wales ones. So it's a great so book. So with uh, someone like me with a small garden but who loves gardening, does Absolutely. it inspire me and give me ideas? Totally, totally. Uh, you know, for example, I'm just, I'm just trying to show you, find this. So this is the Strath Creek property. Right, so it is. It is a. It is on farming land. Love that stone path leading to Isn't the house. Isn't it gorgeous? But they have little nooks and crannies. So I think what you do is you just adapt that to your courtyard or whatever it might be. But Michael is a, is such an intuitive, uh, um, well, des- designer. I mean, he he understands spaces and he understands the look and feel. And so of course the the gardens he's chosen and the designers whose work he's chosen to feature is very strong. He reminded me during our interview that, in fact, many years ago when I was at the age, I used to edit his copy, which, of course, you know, when somebody says that, you immediately feel sick, like, oh, my God, I hope I was nice to them or oh, never. As never. Sam Pang always says to me, remember when you, you used to ask me to pick up your dry cleaning? I'm like, I never asked you to pick up my <laughs> – it turns out he was joking, but he was a panel operator at 3AW. I said, Sam, I'm sorry, I have no memory of you. He said, once but you thought I was <laughs> delivering Chinese takeaway. I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> How bad! It, it's absolutely but, but not true. But for a true. minute, you think, don't you? Like, oh gosh! I know I never would have Michael thought he was said that in front of ninety-five people the other night at the library. My heart did stop for a second, and I thought, <laughs> did I ever send back? A, because of course, then it was all written. Did I ever send back something with a big red slash through it, going, "Not good enough. Try again." But in fact, he said that it had been quite a successful um, union, which was great. But I did remember, I said, of course, that makes sense. Because as I was reading Michael's copy, this is not just an up and down straight garden book, Caro. And certainly compared with Kevin McLeod, who I love Kevin, you know, I've got the biggest crush and I think his show and his whole concept of like his branding is brilliant. But Kevin is not by nature a terrific writer. It's pretty straightforward. Michael writes beautifully. He just reminds me of, um, oh, some of the really great, like, I mean, my mind goes to sort of Vita Sackville West, but some of the really great garden writers who are just so eloquent and don't use the same old adjectives to describe a space. So highly recommend this beautiful book. It is uh, $70, so not inexpensive, but if somebody you know who's a gardener is having a birthday soon or some special celebration, it's called Dream Gardens. And it's a November, um, it's a November release, so it should still be on the new releases section of your bookshop. Uh, that table there, love this book. So that's that, and well done to Michael McCoy. Now, Caro, you've not been to the pictures; you've been home binging. I binged the second series of Love Me. Over I was going. Have you finished Maestro in Blue? No, I haven't. We have had a bit of correspondence. We've on had Maestro. a bit of correspondence on Maestro in Blue. In fact, we've had positive and negative. So I should actually um, share, well, probably I'll share both with you. Um, Maestro in Blue is something that every most people who've watched it have binged the entire thing. Susan Bennett, however, 
said that she eagerly watched it on Netflix after our glowing reviews, but she found the romanticising of a relationship with a teenager and a man in his 40s difficult to watch. She wasn't able to get beyond the three episodes so far. Um, the thought of any teenager she knows being in a relationship with a man in his 40s makes her sick. I'd, I feel oh, it's interesting. The main it? well, she's sort of nineteen or something, isn't she, or twenty? She's eighteen when she first meet, met, meets him yes. in Corfu, and then nineteen when he comes to the island. I must say, Susan, I, I, uh, I, I think I think a young woman at nineteen can probably make up her own mind. But I thought there he was, was in his thirties too. No, no, he's forty something because he says he's thirty years older than nearly thirty oh, years older than her mm, okay. uh, when they first meet at Corfu. But there is a scene which is actually a, a, a dreamlike sequence where they are, um, they start kissing at the piano. And I have to say that when that scene came on, because it's quite, uh, it's quite alluring. It's quite sexy, really. It's beautiful. It's like, I said, it's beautifully photographed and the light is soft light coming through the window and it's a lot of ha action happens on the piano, which is kind of probably somebody's fantasy. Yep. But no, I know, but I know it, the scene you're it, talking yeah, about. But, but I did feel just a tad uncomfortable because she, he had been her teacher and all of a sudden he looks at her on the piano stool and then it's on. And I thought, well, not quite an appropriate setting for that to be happening. But it was a dreamlike sequence. Yeah, but I, no, I didn't I didn't have a problem with that. I mean, you know, she's 18 or she's 19 by the time they actually meet again. Anyway, anyway, but good point. Wade Kingsley, on the other hand, thanks for the recommendation of Maestro in Blue. It's fantastic, brilliant acting, great suspense. See you at the Sorrento Writers Festival, Wade and Susie oh, that's Kingsley. Nice. So thank you. So we take all feedback and I totally understand your misgivings, but I loved it. When you I, were 19, did you ever go out with somebody who was much older? No. Hmm. No, certainly not in their 40s. Corrie, I have watched the second series of Love Me, which has got, oh, look, this is just, this is just a brilliant, brilliantly acted series with a new director. Her name is Bonnie Moyer. Uh, it's various people write the various episodes in series two. One of them is Celia Pakula, who actually stars in the show as well, who's clearly pregnant at the time of filming and they sort of cover it up a bit, but she is the doctor best friend of one of the main characters in the show. So um, this is a story of the Matheson family. You would have watched the first series. It was it's commissioned by Foxtel for Binge. It's on Binge, this series. Um, Hugo Weaving plays the father in one of the all-time great acting performances. In series one, of course, he's still grieving the death of his wife from cancer. They had a complex marriage, but he is obviously completely bereft. He had booked a, hol a couple's holiday. He couldn't get his money back, so he ended up going on the holiday anyway, where he meets the woman who becomes his second wife, who's played brilliantly by Heather Mitchell. And the second series picks up. Hugo Weaving and Heather Mitchell have got married, the two Matheson children, Clara, who is an anaesthetist, a high-achieving single woman, we sort of think in her late 30s, um, maybe even early 40s. And a bit feisty like her mother, who was an, a, a university academic from memory. Yes. The mother who died. Clara is played by Bojana Novakovic. This is, she is a brilliant actor. This performance by... Um, Bojana Novakovic is just one of the great women, female acting performances I've seen on Australian TV in recent years. She's fabulous. It, this is about her new relationship. 
and her battle to have a child. And it gets very, very complicated. William Lodder plays Aaron, the son in the family, an aspiring young lawyer. He's broken up with his girlfriend, but she's pregnant and she's about to have their baby. And he is his best friend all through series one is the woman he we all know he really loves. And they're trying to get their relationship back on track. So look, it's very, very complicated. There has not been a show that has sold Melbourne better than Love Me. Melbourne looks stunning. Whether you're in the exhibition gardens, whether you're in sort of the Eltham Warrandyte area, as I said, one whole episode is based around Sorrento and Portsea, um, where the sun actually sort of gate crashes a girl's weekend. And just put it this way, if you ever go to the New Continental Hotel, you won't want to swim in the pool after what happens in this oh, episode. Really? Um, there is... Um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of Northcote. There's a lot of look St Kilda. It is just so beautifully shot around. I can't as believe as good as Offspring. I mean, Offspring was really like a a, a travelogue and a love to letter Sydney. to no oh, no Melbourne. Offspring Sorry, to, to, Melbourne. Fit, to Fitzroy and Collingwood. Oh, it it makes Melbourne look much more beautiful than Offspring. Wow, it's just a a beautifully directed, well acted, very realistic show. Um, Hugo Weaving and uh, Bajana Novakovic steal the show, but it is just very, very good, and I highly recommend it. It's a real upmarket soapy. Love, and I love could, me on binge. Couldn't stop watching it, Corrie. You've made yet another fabulous cake. I have. I don't know whether I'm allowed to even mention this recipe because the book is embargoed. It doesn't come out till I think the 28th of April. It's called Sweet Enough by Alison Roman, and in fact, Alison Roman, who's an American. Um, cook who we love her first book, don't we? we and yeah, we love Alison Roman. And in fact, Caro, it was was your, she nothing fancy or, or yeah, yeah. It, it was your it's your darling Clementine who she put actually us on to it. yeah when it, when she was working at the bookshop with me and Alison Roman's nothing fancy came in and um, and then followed by dining in and Clem introduced me to uh, Alison so thanks for that so this book is a collection of her all her puddings and treats and cakes and biscuits and all sorts of amazing things. And on the weekend when we had the family Good Friday lunch, I decided that forget the fact that it was going to be 14 degrees, I was going to celebrate <laughs> the last hurrah of summer. Well, there was no hurrah. She just dashed off stage left and never to be seen again. But I cooked a raspberry ricotta cake and this is in the new book and um, it really is a, a fabulous, fabulous book and it was one of the first puddings, in fact, uh, that Alison Roman, she says that she ever made. And it became, she describes it as the beginning of my love affair with a simple one bowl cake, although we do use two in this one. So I won't go through the entire recipe because uh, baking can be a bit tedious to listen to on the podcast, but you, um, it's, it, it involves plain flour, baking powder, salt, ricotta cheese, 365 grams of ricotta cheese, sugar, eggs, vanilla extract, grated zest of one lemon or lime if you would like, unsalted butter, and then three, 340 to 450 grams of raspberries or blackberries, fresh or frozen, they don't mind. I had a bit of both in there. This cake is moist. This cake is delicious. It's not too sweet because of the ricotta. It bakes for about 55 to 60 minutes and then you let it cool for at least 20 minutes. And because you sprinkle sugar, just plain white sugar on the top, it gets a rather crunchy top. It's beautiful. 
We served it with cream. Mine looked just as good as the one in the picture here. I recommend it highly, 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 highly. It sounds absolutely delicious. And the recipe will be on our show notes. It will. Even I think it can be. Well, we're publicising. I think you can reproduce it when you're publicising something. So, look, I'm sure that will be fine with the people at Hardy Grant. They did send me a copy of this knowing that I would talk about it. This is probably going to be the first of several recipes, potties, you'll receive uh, from me. Sweet Enough by Alison Roman, and we will put it on our show notes. I had a, we had a brilliant ricotta cake at a dinner we went to on Thursday night too. Delicious. Yeah, that's um, our friend Siobhan, who's a brilliant cook. Brilliant cook. So you had lots of ricotta cake. I did. I've had a ricotta weekend. That was, oh, that um, warm ricotta, that dip my sister gave me the recipe, the one you mix it up with a, an egg and oh, um, chopped herbs. Oh, can we have mogs in to tell us And And you sprinkle parmesan. It's a fabulous, you do it warm in an oven and just serve it with Yum. warm bread or biscuits. It's a great, we'll do that one next week. Yes, please. I'm grumpy, Corrie, but before I tell you why, I want to then just say again that we want to thank Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro. They sponsor BSF, and thank you for your book, which looks absolutely wonderful, Dream Gardens. Mm. Thank you for your recipe, and I recommend you all watch Love Me Series 2. If you haven't seen Series 1, you should watch that as well. The reason I'm grumpy is because I too was going to make a beautiful sweet treat over the weekend. I was going to make a quince tart. Remember a few years ago when I called on all our wonderful potties to give me a quince tart or quince cake recipe? And they came in by their thousands. I think in the end, um, Cath O'Dowd gave me the best one. By their thousands? Well, dozens. <laughs> I do, I've, I've kept heaps of them, seriously. They're all in my I drawer. know. I know you have. But, uh, but and, and over some over autumn and winter, you should go through them. And I arrived to, I hadn't looked at my quince tree for a couple of weeks, but it's been netted and covered in nets. And some years I get about 50 this year. It didn't look like there were that many, but, you know, I certainly had about 15. I pulled the net off. No quinces. The birds had eaten every single one. They'd got under the nets. Not Didn't one Didn't you tie up your net, nets at the bottom? Well, no. I mean, they never normally go up and under. Oh. I mean, I tied up some bits. Oh, I was devastated. I was devastating. And um, it was only in in the space of about 10 days. I mean, yes, I was clearly slack. I should have picked them a bit earlier. But if you pick quince a bit early, they're never as nice when you do that beautiful slow poaching in the oven when they all go pink. No quince. A couple with big bites out of them. Did you run down to the fruit and veg? No. Luckily, luckily, my figs were absolutely rocketing, as were Mm. my dear next-door neighbour, Belinda, and she brought me round a box and... I had lots on my tree, so I did a fig tart oh, instead. I did Clem's fig tart. Corrie, um, it's now time for well, six, six quick questions. Next time, tie up your nets. Yes. Now, Cara, I'm going to ask you, what's the best acting performance you've seen all year? I think you almost mentioned it, didn't you, with that the no, girl in love? No. I, I reckon he's one of the great British actors, and his name is Roger Allam, A-double-L-A-M. He's in a new thing that I'd love to watch, which is um, Murder in Provence, and I don't really know what where I can find that. But I don't know if you watch Endeavour. Um, Endeavour is um, the sort yes, of... Yes, the pre... The, not Sweeney, the pre... Um, it's a prequel to, to Inspector Morse. Yeah, Inspector Morse, that's right. And um, in, Inspector Morse, as we know, is a brilliant show with um, John Thor. But um, Endeavour, the young Morse, has been going... Started in 2012... Starring Sean Devins as the young Sean Evans. Roger Allen plays um, 
the grisly old mm. detective and his mentor, Thursday. Now, Roger Allen has got better and better in this show. He is so brilliant in what is the final series of Endeavour, and I urge you to watch it on ABC iView. He's a brilliant actor. I'm just showing you my screen here, Caro. Look at him as a young man. Oh, yeah. Handsome. Handsome man. Yep. He's been in everything over the years. Hasn't he ever? Uh, not Harry Potter that I know of, unlike this, most no, British actors. No, he never got a gig in Harry Potter. But the, the cast of this show, I mean, Abigail Thor is a newspaper, the local newspaper editor. Anton Lesser, who I love, but I, I think he's a bit of an overactor, but he's brilliant in it. James Bradshaw as the, um, you know, the coroner guy, the, you know, what, what are they called? The ones who dig up the, yeah, the coroner. Yeah, coroner. No, not the coroner, the one who actually comes and looks at the bodies. And the coroner does. Yes, okay, sorry, him. He's brilliant. But the performance of Thursday, a highly complex character with a very troubled son, a very nervous wife, a daughter with some issues. It, look, this is one of the most brilliantly written series. It ends, it's ended now, it's over. And the final scene is just a sight to behold. Anyway, I think he's the best actor going around well, at the I'd moment. Well, look, I'm looking at his... Uh, I'm looking at his um repertoire of work and there's a lot of important stage work here um not so many movies but he oh well like everyone else in england he's been on midsummer murders <laughs> and foils war <laughs> remember that night in cornwall i couldn't get to bed because you wanted to watch an episode of foils oh, war i love foils you had war. the television on too loud Corey, um, but he has been around in a few things yeah we digress the pre which previously little known word in just one week has become one of the world's me world media's most used words arraignment Arraignment. Yeah. Well, you, well, it I've was, heard of it. Well, I've heard well, of it. I've heard of it but yes, you're right. It's not used <laughs> very often. Uh, uh, with Donald, with Donald Trump's arraignment and his flight, for, honestly, that was like the O.J. Simpson chase. Oh. They had cameras following him to from Mar-a-Lago to the private. Mum was up at four had, watching the whole thing. Oh, she said it was the oh, best TV. Mad. Really? She said it was riveting. Even me, who would quite like to see Donald Trump behind bars for various misdemeanors. Even I did not watch the actual gallivanting up and down <laughs> the West Coast. But anyway, there he was. He arrived at the Manhattan District Court and for his arraignment. And I thought that's so interesting, isn't it? Because here in Australia, we don't very, really say very that. American it's word. very American because we say um, somebody, if, if, if what it is, it's the first step in a criminal proceeding where the defendant is brought in front of the court to hear the charges against them. Usually their solicitors then enter a plea and everybody either goes off, well, they go to prison where they're in remand or they go home if they're on bail or whatever. But we usually say here in Australia, we bring a defendant before a judge or a magistrate to hear the charges. So when, whether it's a plea of guilty or not guilty, we don't, we don't, anyway, I just thought that was very interesting because arraignment, suddenly everybody was talking about it. So that was, I found that quite interesting, Cara. Which actor casting rumours have stuff up written all over it? Well, remember when they changed the characters in Dallas? Oh, they did a lot of weird things in Dallas. One of the things they did was that they Bobby killed came, Bobby and Bobby it didn't came work. came back from the dead. And then the last two, whole two series were a dream in the mind of his wife. Anyway, this is Kevin Costner, who has apparently had a bit of a hissy fit with Yellowstone and the filming times. And the rumour is he's, he could even leave the show and he's going to be replaced by Matthew McConaughey. Now, that's, this just can't happen. 
I know you're not a Yellowstone fan, but if someone... Yet another reason not to watch Yellowstone. He, he's not the most compelling character on the show. I reckon that's Rip. But I reckon he is just a brilliant, brilliant part of this show. It's resurrected his career. It's a fascinating show. There's sequels, there's prequels. I watched the one with um, Helen Mirren the other day and um, Harrison Ford on a plane, 1923 or something. Anyway, it's really, really good, and he can't do this. It will just ruin the show. Matthew McConaughey is all wrong as the Dutton Patriarch. He wasn't bad in that film with Hugh Grant where they played East End, East End London. Um, Matthew McConaughey. He's a great yeah, actor, yeah. but he's just wrong in that wrong role. In that part. Okay. Corey, which news story last week did you have zero interest in? Rupert Murdoch calling off his... Uh, engagement to Anne Leslie Smith. Was this six days or six months? I don't understand. It was a very short engagement. That was a very short engagement. They uh, So Rupert Murdoch was 92 and three days after he had put a $2 million Asher cut diamond solitaire engagement ring on the finger of Anne Leslie Smith, they decided to call it off. And we think it might have something to do with the fact that she is... Um, very, very, um, shall we say, Christian-minded. She's quite evangelical. And uh, we understand that that didn't go down all that well in Murdoch headquarters. 92, Carol, and you call off your engagement. It's interesting, isn't it? It's very weird, private life. Uh, Very um, weird. Which forthcoming documentary are you determined not to miss? Boom Boom versus the World. This is the story of the rise and fall of Boris Becker. Um, It looks absolutely riveting. It's been made by um, an Oscar-winning doco maker by the name of Alex Gibney, who sort of has charted his rise and fall. When I was um, a young sports writer living in London, I covered Boris Becker's first Wimbledon victory. I was there, I think it was 1984, and this was just one of the all-time great stories. It was just this 17-year-old kid who came from nowhere, from Germany, but who'd basically been taken away from his family, from his parents, his German parents, who were over there and housed with a a coach and a manager who'd just taken over the life. I mean, he he was just this big serving, absolute star. I think it was 1985, actually. He was just, um, he he burst onto the scene. He came from nowhere. He won Wimbledon after winning Queen, the Queen's Tournament, I remember um, Johan Creek, one of the great returners of serve, said, I've never, ever had a, anyone serve a ball at me like this, you know, without question, the best and hardest server I've ever played against. He got the name Boom Boom. And I remember looking at him and his parents back in the hotel where they were, they were staying. I was covering the story after he won Wimbledon at the age of 17. And he just had this lost look about him. And his parents, you could tell they'd sort of lost him as well. And um, Jan um, Perrick, I think, was his um, manager. Anyway. And do we travel right through his life? Oh, his yeah. And crimes his recent, and misdemeanours? Well, he's recently been released from prison. He went to jail for tax reasons. He had some terrible sex scandals. And this looks like a very smart, it's a real perils of too much, too young type doco, and I'm really looking forward to it. Boom, boom versus the world. Corey, what's this week's amazing fact? I thought I'd tell you a couple of facts about the coronation of King Charles. Oh, have you booked that? That's set come up. It's happening have on I, have a I Saturday. If I booked it. Have you booked the day off? <laughs> it's happening on a Saturday. It's after the Writers' Festival. You'll have yeah. time. No, it'll be it's a Saturday evening our time, Saturday early morning their time. Brilliant. morning. So the date, did you know, Caro, the date falls, of the coronation falls, which is the, I think it's the 6th of May, falls 
short, just short of the 70th anniversary of the Queen's coronation. Of course, she was um, declared monarch when her father died in February 1952, but they didn't have the coronation until June 1953. Um, Westminster Abbey is the place where it'll all be happening, and that has been the setting for British coronations for the past 900 years, Caro. This podcast has been That's going amazing. 261 episodes. Think of 900 years. That's amazing. Um, according to according to sources, it, it, the whole project or operation is called Operation Golden Orb. And it's <laughs> just something weird about that. Golden Orb. <laughs> sounds like wow. a, it sounds like the title of a 1978 <laughs> porn movie, don't you think? <laughs> Um, and it will reflect the, the whole coronation ceremony and everything surrounding it will reflect the new sovereign's vision for a smaller, more modern monarchy. For example, the ceremony for the Queen lasted long, more than three hours. This one will be just over an hour in total. It will also be less expensive. The government, Why is it so short? Well, I just think they've cut out a few hymns or something. I don't know. Um, the government pays for the coronation, Caro, but the King has re- reportedly said that he wants the service to be considered, quote-unquote, good value. And it will include more representatives from different faiths and community groups that has ever been seen before to, of course, uh, reflect Britain's ethnic diversity. Camilla becomes the first consort to be crowned since the Queen Mother in 1937, and she will wear Queen Mary's diamond-encrusted crown placed on her head. But she's called Queen Camilla now already, which was against the Queen's wishes. I know. According to Mm. Clarence House, they all have to call her the Queen now. Mm -mm. Not one, dear me. Anyway, on to Camilla. What's she going to wear? Well, we do know that she has commissioned Bruce Oldfield, who in fact was a very dear friend of Diana, Princess of Wales. She has commissioned Bruce Oldfield to design the dress. Now, I'm pretty happy with that, Caro, because as you know, I don't reckon I've seen Camilla in a decent dress for a very long time, but she did wear an <laughs> absolutely beautiful one. I don't think she's got great taste, but she wore it, but things are improving. And she did wear this really beautiful one. Um, you probably don't remember, but for the premiere of one of the James Bond movies last year or the year before, and it was sky blue and it was not figure hugging, but very elegant and it was beaded. So it was this blue, but beaded. So it shimmered. Long sleeves, which I think is absolutely essential for, um, well, certainly for these sorts of occasions and particularly a coronation. So I suspect that Bruce Oldfield will be doing something pretty good too. Uh, of course, they have to take into account the very dramatic coronation robes, which are usually made of silk and velvet and trimmed with ermine and all that kind of thing. Um, what else can I tell you about this thing? Oh, I wanted to tell you about the Queen Consort's ring. This is the best part of the whole thing. The Queen Consort receives her own ring and actually dates back to 1831. Uh, it was made for Queen Adelaide, wife of um, William IV. And I'm going to just show you this. This is it here with the diamonds and rubies. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, it's amazing. With a with a Union Jack on it or Union Jack sort of shape. Anyway, I thought that was pretty fabulous. So everybody can look on their own computers to see that. Um, invitations have been dispatched to 2,000 guests, which is a smaller group than the Queen's. The Queen had 8,000 back in her day. And the other thing I wanted to show is you. Is Australia and, sending a representative? Yes. Um, Anthony Albanese is going. Joe Biden has said, sorry, can't go, but Jill is going in his place. Uh, I think the King and Queen of Japan and um, 
Oh, probably Elton John. I don't know. Um, the other thing I wanted to tell you about, Caro, is that if you can, look up on Royal Family on your Instagram or one of those. I think it's called at Royal Family. Um, have a look at the coronation invitation. It's absolutely gorgeous. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Oh, you must. Um, I wonder if I've got it here. Let me see if I can show you. It's really, really beautiful. And it reflects, obviously, King Charles' love of the garden. Look at that. Oh, that's very pretty. Isn't that elegant? The coronation of their majesties, King Charles III and Queen Camilla. It sounds like something out of Sleeping Beauty and the Grimm's Brothers. Anyway, the, the, it's a beauty. It was it was designed um, by uh, Andrew Jamison, who's a heraldic artist and manuscript illuminator, and it covers the monarch's love of horticulture and flowers and animals and also wrens and birds and things. It's very beautiful. And then finally, I just I don't know whether you realise this, but the king and the queen have their own page boys and little associates. I think um, Queen Camilla has chosen her her Parker Bowles grandchildren. Um, but among the king's, king's pages will be Prince George. So, uh, And then there's uh, some other young folk as well. And the queen's consorts will be her grandsons, as I said. So that's all pretty jolly. Um, don't think I have much else to report. Updates will come as I hear. And um, oh, well, we'll be we have watching long... it on the telly. And we don't know whether Harry and Meghan are going yet. The latest, I did think that you would ask me that. So I jumped onto the wires last night and uh, discovered that although the date of confirmation RSVP was the 3rd of April, apparently uh, Prince Harry and the Duchess of Sussex have not yet said whether they will be attending. And what was he thinking, taking Prince Andrew to that Easter service? What was that? Oh, you, did you see, though, how Prince Andrew just ever so subtly gets himself next to Anne? So he's kind of like right behind the king. I'm really surprised they're not shunning him a bit more more obviously. But anyway, they're obviously not. So that's a bad call in my view. Corrie, that's a great fact. And I will be, look, I've got to admit it, I'll be watching the coronation. Are we going to be watching it together with uh, with your mum, as we, usual? Well, I, I haven't actually... As usual. Ma- We've never done a coronation before. No, we weren't alive for the last one. <laughs> We've done a couple of funerals <laughs> together and a couple of weddings. We've done weddings. We've done Will funerals. you be in Australia? Yes, I will. I certainly uh, not will. On, not on a jaunt somewhere? No, I won't be jaunting anywhere that weekend. Oh, I think we should think about a, a little... Um, coronation chicken night. That was a fabulous, amazing fact. Thank you, everybody. Thank you to Lawrence, who was filled in for the wonderful Miss Jane. Um, don't forget, we're shooting and recording our live podcast at the Sorrento. We're not shooting it. We're just recording it at the Sorrento RSL. And that's happening on Wednesday, the 26th of April, uh, between 5 and 7 p.m., $45. We'd love you to come along. The link for the tickets is on the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook and Instagram pages or on our show, no- show notes, or you can go to Ballpark, that's one word, ballparkentertainment.com.au forward slash tickets. And Corrie, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at don'tshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store.